Hello, everyone. Welcome to Your Injury Lawyer podcast. We have a special guest today, Rich Newsom of Newsom Melton Law Firm in Orlando. Rich, I looked at your website and it says that you are the premier products liability law firm in the Orlando area. I know that you tried a church, uh, I think kind of a seat case and had a fabulous result. And you also tried a uh, another case where uh, a student got hit by, I think, a garbage truck, and you also had an, another multi-million dollar result. And I think you also did, you were maybe involved in the Oxycontin litigation in Florida. And, and on your website, you've had uh, a lot of substantial verdicts. So, Rich, could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what kind of cases you and your firm does if you could maybe just introduce yourself to everyone yeah absolutely and first bill thanks for having me i was really looking forward to this before we got started i said how much i was excited about this for the chance to catch up with you you know you and i've known each other a long time it's just really great to have this chance to connect and if we have to do it around a podcast even better but uh i'm really grateful to be here today so, yeah, so my background, I started as a federal prosecutor. I'm from Florida, went to FSU undergrad, Florida uh, law school. And then after graduation, worked uh, for the U.S. Attorney's Office, got a bunch of jury trials and then rolled out and was with a law firm that was sort of a boutique product liability defense firm. And I represented Ford Motor Company and DuPont, these big manufacturers that made products that were alleged to kill people. <laughs> and that didn't last very long. There was a case uh, where... A family had lost a two-year-old, and I was defending Ford and felt like I needed to be on the other side. My wife was pregnant with our oldest daughter, who's now 26, so that tells you how long ago it was. But I left and started um, networking with other personal injury lawyers who had mainly auto practices, who, you know, I was friends with a lot of these folks anyway, and got involved in the Florida Justice Association and started basically marketing myself to other plaintiff lawyers to say, hey, listen, if uh, you get a defective product case and you need help, call me. I'd love to get involved because I kind of know how to do this from having been on the defense side. And that's been probably 80% of my practice over the last uh, 25 years, which has been uh, working with other personal injury lawyers and law firms to co-counsel cases involving uh, defective cars, defective uh, products, um, you know, sometimes some weirdo products that uh, do things that are counterintuitive or sort of don't meet uh, the the expectations that folks would have in terms of safety. And so, yeah, that's been my career, and uh, it's been very rewarding. We've had um, some some great recalls that we have forced uh, as a result of some of our cases, and I think we've done a really uh, good job for some of our clients. Uh, we don't have a huge volume of cases. Our Caseload is relatively small because the cases are complex, they're expensive, but it's been really rewarding. And I look back and I, I feel you know grateful to have had the chance to represent the people that, uh, that we've had come through our doors. Okay. And can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you've had some really good results trying cases, multi-million dollar verdicts. Can you maybe tell us about how you went from just law school into 
the, those kind of results? Did you try a lot yeah. of decisions as, as a defense attorney or as a baby lawyer? How did you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, like a lot of us, you know, I, I got experience as a prosecutor. You know, a lot of us start in criminal and just to get the the trial skills and started there and had some great training from some great federal prosecutors here in Florida. I was in the Northern District for a couple of years and then in the Middle District, which is in Orlando, and really had some. I started very young as a federal prosecutor. I think I was 24 when I started and had some really great mentors. And then when I was with the defense firm, had uh, another great mentor who was truly arguably the best product liability defense lawyer in the country at the time. His name was Ron Cabanis, and he would be hired by these corporations on what they called blockbuster cases, which are bet the company cases. And Ron was looking for a young lawyer who could help him, who had tried cases. A lot of the associates or young partners in these big firms don't have trial experiences, uh, but, but I had because I'd come from the federal prosecutors. And so I got to learn under this guy who was amazing. And uh, it just that side didn't fit with my soul. And I just, I felt so much compassion for the folks on the other side. I actually took a huge pay cut when I left the firm, felt it was important. So then, so then I kind of just rolled along and tried cases, had a lot of really good results. But then uh, it was probably 15 years ago uh, that I tried a case. It was a defective product case up in Perry, Florida. And it was involving a 19-year-old paraplegic on what I thought was a case that was a laydown. And I was real cocky because I'd never lost a case at, at that point in my career and rolled in and after a two-week trial, got defense, got a defense verdict against me. And it was devastating, devastating for the client. I remember meeting with him in the parking lot and I just, I, I couldn't speak. I was crying, you know, holding him with his mom and it really shook me. And I realized that I had so much to learn. Um, and it, for a couple of years, I, I kind of, you know, I tried some more cases, but I really had lost my nerve. And a friend of mine named Mel Orchard, who was the managing partner of Jerry Spence's firm out in Wyoming, talked me into going to the Trial Lawyers College, which is this legendary trial advocacy program in right outside of Du Bois, uh, Wyoming. Jerry Spence, for some of the younger lawyers have never, maybe never heard of this guy. He's truly one of the greatest trial lawyers who ever lived. He's in his late 90s now. And he's still hanging on. But in the day, he created this, this program with the idea that there's so many important things that traditional trial advocacy programs just don't teach. And he came up with this really out-of-the-box radical approach using uh, psychodrama, using uh, other communication methods. But his, his premise was that we aren't real in the courtroom. We're not taught to be real. And in fact, law school teaches us the opposite, how to have these sort of these facades of, of this fake persona that we put on for the jury. But yet right bubbling beneath the surface, there's all this fear, all this anxiety. And Spence teaches, first of all, this, they use this process called psychodrama, which is this really um, powerful method to understand your fears and really understand who you are as a human being. And then to be real with the jury about it and to be brutally honest about your fears and to share those and, and, and to handle witnesses differently uh, based upon approaching jury selection, opening statements, witness examination, closing, all of it from being a real human being. And it was so life-changing for me uh, being exposed to this that I came back 
and um, started to try to understand how to use it. Um, we actually started, I started working with some other lawyers around the country to pull Method together. And we actually formed a not-for-profit called Trial School. Uh, it's trialschool.org for anybody who wants to join. It's completely free. It was created by lawyers to try to first and foremost understand how to, to, to put some of these various methods together. And I think, you know, over the, since, since that has happened, uh, it's really changed the way I try cases. I think it is a dramatically more powerful uh, and persuasive way because you're being real and you're being honest, uh, honest with the way you feel, honest with the warts in your cases and, you know, being vulnerable and honest about your fears and your concerns. It's like a magnet for a jury. And it's just indescribable. For anyone who's never been to one of those programs, there's actually, there's two, there's the Trial Lawyers College and the Jerry Spence Method, um, but just really transformative and I think should be an important part of, of any lawyer's journey to trying to learn how to better try cases. Thank you. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about the, the Perry case of maybe why you think uh, you didn't get a good result, uh, a bad jury, you didn't connect with the jury or? Yeah, I, I, th I think it was everything. I wasn't real and I didn't own the faults in the case first and foremost. I wasn't real about those and I was trying to cover them up or explain them away, which I think is completely now, I know that to be not, not correct. I think at the end of the day where I really lost it was in jury selection. Um, there is another method that, that uh, a friend of mine named Alex Alvarez has developed. He had similarly lost a case 20 years ago. Alex is a great lawyer and mainly does tobacco. But he um, got his butt kicked too in a huge case and, like me, did a deep dive to try to understand why and created this incredible system called MOMUS, M-O-M-U-S, that is a way of picking juries that really also transform the way that I approach. And a lot of it's confidential. Um, it's for plaintiff lawyers only. But at, at the end of the day, it's a way of identifying um, your good jurors and your bad jurors and coming up with an objective way, an objective method to score them. And a lot of times, you know, when, for example, we use our peremptory challenges, we, we do them in such a way that, you know, we're sort of intuitive. Uh, but, but Alex's method goes much deeper than that. There's a whole process that starts even before jury selection to, to identify your uh, per, per potential panel. You know, if there's going to be you know, 600 people being called in on a Monday morning, you only may have 30 or 40 in, in your courtroom. But you start early by digging into all of them and doing an analysis. And then there's a very precise method that you start the voir dire by, by identifying additional factors that is going to identify the good jurors, the bad jurors, the, the, the ones that you need to strike versus the ones that you'll have to worry about. Uh, and, and, and then at the end, you know, using this method to score them and to most effectively exercise your peremptory challenges. And also to combine that with the Jay Burke method. Jay Burke was a great jury consultant here in Florida who developed what, what he called the causes king method. Now, this is a method that Chris Searcy uses that, you know, a lot of the great Florida lawyers, Keith Mitnick wrote about it in his book, Don't Eat the Bruises. And he actually gives Jay Burke credit for the method. But I think for me that when you combine the trial lawyers college method of, of being brutally honest about your fears in the case with the Jay Burke causes King method, which is focused on developing challenges for cause based upon the bad parts of your case. 
And finally, the Alex Alvarez MoMA scoring method, when you put those three things together, it, it, I think it's the state of the art in today in, in terms of, of picking juries. And I think if I had known that, I'm, I'm confident, I know with certainty, because I have went back and looked at the, 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 the voir dire data from that Perry, Florida case. But if I had used that method today, I know we would have come up with a different jury. I know that the jury would have felt differently about me and my case. I know that I would have better used my peremptory challenges and probably the outcome would have been different. So yeah, that was, that was sort of my, my moment. And I, I, I really believe I lost it at the end of the day in jury selection. Can you maybe tell us about uh, the church van case? I, I think that maybe I, I heard about that case on trial school where you were refining how you were going to approach the case near the end of how you, it, it, about it was something with a seatbelt and huh. yeah. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about that case and what it was about and then maybe get into the voir dire and maybe the opening and the closing a little sure. bit? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so this is a case where this lovely family from, Pasco County, Florida, were a great family. Mom and dad had been together since high school. They had these, uh, these, these four incredible children. Uh, she had homeschooled them all. He had a small electrical company, and the mom was the chaperone on a school trip, on a church trip. They were going up to Georgia when, uh, and and she was with one of her daughters. She gets in the car that morning and she looks for a seatbelt, couldn't find it. And so, well, you know, let's hope for the best and uh, could have looked for it, but didn't. And she was the only one in the vehicle that was not wearing her seatbelt. Anyway, vehicle goes down the road. There's a tread separation. The tire fails, causes the vehicle to go out of control. It rolls over several times. She was ejected and killed. Uh, the driver was also killed because he was not, he was the only other one not wearing a seatbelt. But everyone else lived and came away with relatively minor injuries. And so we sued Ford Motor Company. We sued Sam's Club for having sold what was a recalled tire. We sued Michelin or Continental. I can't, I think it was Continental. Anyway, we sued the tire manufacturer for making a defective tire. And we sued Ford for making a van that uh, was tippy. Uh, it had a propensity to roll over. So we got into the case, Ford laughed at us, you know, everyone laughed at us. Well, we all sued the Baptist church for not maintaining the vehicle the right way. And it ended up going to trial. We did settle with uh, the tire manufacturer and with Sam's Club before trial because they, you know, it was a recalled tire. But we were going into this case with basically um, no offer from Ford. And so the big problem, of course, in the case was the seatbelt because of based on all the others, if she had been wearing it, she probably would have lived. And so um, we really had to, this is an example of, I think, where you really got to sort of ask out of the box questions with, with a case. It's like, well, why did that happen? You know, what is the piece of the puzzle? Does that make common sense? And so what we knew is that when she got in that morning, the seatbelt wasn't there on the bench seat. So we had, of course, the van, we had secured it and we have a, a warehouse where we store uh, defect, you know, our defective vehicles because those are evidence in a case. And so I'm sitting there in the very position where she was and the seatbelt's not there and you look under and there it is on the floor. And so it's, the, I'm sure you've probably been in these 16 passenger vans where they have the bench seats, they have three rows of bench seats. 
And there's a, a little hole in the sea where it's supposed to come through and it just had fallen through. And I started to ask myself, well, why does that happen? That shouldn't happen. It should, it should be made in such a way that the seatbelt's fixed so that it's there when someone needs it. And so I got with some of our experts. I got with some of our consultants. We started digging. And sure enough, when you look at the seatbelt regulations, it says that a seatbelt uh, or manufacturer must make seatbelts easily accessible in a vehicle. And so my thought was, well, gosh, it wasn't accessible. Now, no one in the history of seatbelt litigation and, and, or, or, or 16 passenger van cases has ever come up with this idea of a defective seatbelt because it fell through the seat. And when I told my co-counsel, I had a, a friend of mine who was helping out, Chris Spagnoli. She had some of the other, um, she had one of the, she represented the, the deceased driver. She told me I was crazy. I actually hung up on me. I told her I was going to try to pursue that theory. But um, we found another exemplar and, and where someone had actually zip-tied uh, the seatbelt buckles in place. And Ford thought I was crazy. But their expert on the stand had to basically admit that, yes, the seatbelts are available. Yes, or should be available. Yes, the regs say that they have to be available. And all the other facts in the case, we actually made something called an agree board, which is uh, a, basically just a list that you write on the flip chart that had all these different things. The only thing Ford didn't agree is, was that there was a defective design. They were sort of apoplectic because they thought it was a made up theory uh, that, that had just you know, been invented at the last minute. And it kind of was, but I believed in it because Florida has uh, the consumer expectations test. And when a consumer gets into the car, you expect the seatbelt to be available, especially if it's five in the morning with a bunch of kids and it's dark and you can't find it. And so that was the case. That's what we went forward with in, in, in that case. And it ended up uh, being a, being a great verdict for the family. Um, yeah. Uh, jury selection in that case, though, I used the, this hybrid approach uh, using the trawlers college piece together with the Jay Burke causes King and the Alex Alvarez scoring and I thought we got a, had a great verdict. It was a two-day jury selection. We started with 120 uh, jurors. And we had, uh, there were so many of them who uh, I had developed cause challenges for that they were basically just barely enough. Actually, if I had used one of my peremptory challenges on an al the alternate, uh, there, the judge would have had to have required a mistrial. Uh, but we did get a jury. We seated a jury. And, and we, we, we stuck to the method. And, you know, and it worked. And, and so that was the story of that case. Um, tough case, but ended up coming out in our client's favor. Can you tell us the verdict in that case? I think it was $26 million, yeah, for, uh, for the mom, for the death of the mom. That was a conservative, it was the biggest verdict in that courthouse ever. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the I think, a girl at the University of Florida, a dump truck case? Can you tell us a little bit about that, how... How you worked that case up to? Yeah, that was actually one I was brought in to try that case to help another firm try it. Um, that's another thing I've done over the last you know six or seven years is is to help other firms try cases. And a uh, great firm uh, out of uh, South Florida had worked this thing up. Really smart lawyers, but they just needed some help initially, just with jury selection. But then they asked if I could help them try the case, and so I uh, got involved in that two weeks out. And so I did not do anything to work it up, but they had done a really nice job. But the problem in the case was the facts are it was a really nice 22-year-old college pre-med student, straight A's, was on her bike, 
She had been drinking the night before uh, because it was her, her birthday. She, they found cocaine in her system, so she had most likely bumped cocaine. She got up early, you know, she had been up till three in the morning, got up, still alcohol in her system, still cocaine in her system. And she's riding her bike to class and she's late. And so she's gone, everyone estimated, probably 15, 16 miles an hour. And she was, if you're familiar with the University of Florida, there's University Avenue, which is a very busy street. And there are these cross streets and she was coming towards university and was about to cross it on her bicycle. And she was in the road, but between traffic and the curb. So she was sort of right next to, to traffic. And as she approached that intersection, there was a big garbage truck there. And the garbage truck, according to the defense, uh, was making a right-hand turn. By all evidence, he had his blinkers on. He was making a right-hand turn. And uh, she uh, went out right in front of him in the crosswalk and in the crosswalk and the garbage truck ran over her and killed her instantly. And so the defense was, hey, man, it's not our fault that she was going 16 miles an hour. She was drunk and high and she just wasn't looking where she was going. And it's not our fault. It was an accident. Golly, we would have, this guy felt terrible. And so that was the case. And, you know, low or minimal offer. I don't remember what it was, but we ended up trying it. The big dispute that I got into with my co-counsel was whether to accept responsibility. And so I think that that's something that uh, I sort of took away after going through the Jerry Spence College was that you've, you've got to own it, man. If you've got problems in the case, you got to own it. You got to embrace it. You got to really be honest with yourself and, and think about, you know, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, she shouldn't have done it. It was, a, it was both folks fault. It was the driver's fault and her fault. And, and so um, I wanted to accept responsibility and actually put a number on it. He didn't want me to, but he let me do the closing. So, the closing argument, I did. I said, all right, we accept responsibility. And there's a whole method of, you know, I'm sure a lot of folks have heard about anchoring damages where you uh, say a number and you give a basis for it to anchor it. Uh, it's much more powerful than not asking for a particular dollar amount. But um, there's a whole, heck, we could do a whole podcast on that. But um, this whole notion of accepting, accepting fault and accepting responsibility is important. I'd come up with a metaphor of you know, everyone's heard about the scales of justice, right? You, know, you, put, you, know, you have two, two plates with you know, chains. You see which one weighs more. And I analogize this, and I used actually images of you know, the kind of scale you see in Publix, which is you stand on the scale and it's got a little needle. And I said, you know, here you have two, not just one scale, but two scales. Uh, you've got um, the scale for our client and you've got the scale for the garbage truck. And you've got to weigh who was more at fault. And that's a product of time and evidence. And so then what we also did, we had, this really wasn't developed a lot in the corporate rep, but there was enough that we were able to work with where this guy had been working basically 15 hour days, six days a week because it was their busy season. It was right around the holiday and he was all alone in the garbage truck. And so we were able to turn that in the case to, to say that it really wasn't him. This kind of goes into some of the Don Keenan uh, sort of methodology where you, where you try to work upstream and, and, and look at an act not in the vacuum of the moment. But, but to try to understand, at least from the defense perspective, what led us to this position where you had this driver who was all alone on this garbage truck, 
who had been working 15 hours a day and couldn't, and here was the operative fact, couldn't finish his shift. It wasn't how many hours a day, but it was a route that he had. And he had to make some ungodly amount. It was like 80-something stops to empty garbage you know, out of these dumpsters before he could go home. And that's why it was taking him 15 hours. And so I was able to use, in closing argument, this, this trawler's college method of creating a scene where you actually act it out. And so I started the opening or the closing argument that morning acting out from his perspective, from the driver's perspective. I said, here I am. I'm so-and-so. I'm getting up and it's dark outside. It's cold. I'm putting on my jacket. And I'm, I'm still tired because I didn't get home until 8 o'clock last night. And you're, you're saying it all in the present, present tense. And again, this we could do a whole um, podcast on this. But it was basically to create the scene where I'm actually I pulled up a chair in front of the jury box. And I acted like I was driving the truck and I'm, I'm talking in the first person and talking about how I'm alone, about how I can't finish my day. And gosh, if I can just speed up a little bit, maybe I can get home to be with my family a little bit earlier. Uh, and, you know, they, they didn't, you know, this is the way I'm paid. And, and I went through the whole thing. And then, of course, the accident, accident sequence itself. Um, but I think that was a, a powerful way of sort of making him the victim, too. And that you had two victims here, not just our client, but also this poor driver who who clearly felt terrible about it. And and the real villain here, and that's another thing Spence teaches, is to find the villain and find the betrayal. And the villain here was this garbage truck corporation that had put drivers on the road without enough resources to really take their time to be safe. You know, they said safety was their priority, but clearly they betrayed that, betrayed the driver, betrayed the public by creating this draconian schedule where this poor son of a gun had to finish this ungodly schedule before he was allowed to go home. And that, that's really, I think, what did it. That, with the, again, making sure we used the right approach to picking the jury and uh, got another you know, $26, $27 million verdict on that one. Let me ask you this, Richard. Congratulations on two incredible results. So you have the garbage truck the guy working, overworked, the girl rushing to class. How were you able to prove that it was the garbage truck's fault versus the girl rushing to class's fault? Yeah, so I, I, again, this is what almost got me punched when I sat down at council table because I said, you know, I kind of something like this. I said, members of the jury, you know, I'd like to talk about defense expert who you, who you heard in this case. He was a bicycle expert. He's a reconstructionist. And he said that it was our client's fault because she shouldn't have been trying to ride her bike between the garbage truck and the curb. And I paused. I said, and that has the ring of truth to it. And so because of that, our client accepts responsibility for her own fault. She's at fault. And I had the verdict form up. And so when, it, when you say, was Abigail Doherty at fault, you need to check yes. Now, the next question, though, deals with the apportionment of fault because it's your job to decide the percentages and they have to add up to 100. Well, how do you do that? And then I pulled up this image of these two scales. I said, so it's almost like you have two scales at Publix and you have to weigh the evidence. And we have to look at that weight in terms of two factors, time uh, and, and the evidence itself. And so what we know for Abigail Do Doherty, she basically had... 10 seconds at the most, maybe five seconds where she made a bad decision. It wasn't a choice. It was just a poor decision. 
So I wrote, you know, like five seconds on, on the, on the board. And so, so let's look at, you know, the garbage truck company. They, they knew for years that safety was supposed to be their top priority. So I put, you know, however, what, 10 years or whatever the guy had said. So let's, let's, you know, 10 years. And, and they were looking at reducing the number of drivers to save money. So I'd write reduce drivers. They knew that this was the busy season, busy season. They knew that with only one driver, there was less of a chance for safety, you know, put one driver. And so, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but you'd go through all this. And so at the end of it, you would have this image of, of the metaphor of the two scales. And one has basically five seconds, you know, uh, inattention or whatever. And the other, you had all the stacked stuff. And so it's so members of the jury based upon the time and the weight of the evidence where the garbage truck defendant had years of of choices that they made about what they were prioritizing, whether it was safety or money, versus this college student who made a bad decision over a few seconds. And, and that needs to be your guide. And that's how you can wait. And I would suggest, and this is what I always do, I think you have to give a number, just like with damages. I would suggest then you give Abigail Doherty 5%, 5% of the fault. So the 95% is on the garbage truck company and 5% is on Abigail Doherty. And that's how you do it. So you sort of guide them through how to do it because they are looking for a way uh, to actually figure it out. And so then the discussion comes in the jury room. And typically what they'll do is they'll double it with whatever you say. You know, and then of course the defense lawyers up there saying it's hundred percent our fault and it's not their fault at all. And it's a it's a great juxtaposition to be in because you know we're we're taught in kindergarten that sharing is a good thing. And when you're selfish, it's a bad thing. And so when you're, as a, as a party, you're willing to share the responsibility. That's just, that's got such a warm, cozy feeling to me. And when you own it, it is true. They're both at fault. There's no question. So, so let's, let's put that all on the table. And then you juxtapose that against the defense attorney says, no, it's not our fault at all. And da, da, da. it just, it looks insincere and shitty. And, and so I think, that's that's how we got the result we did. And they, they ended up putting a little more fault. I don't know what it was, you know, 15%, some of them 20% on, on her set. I think it was 17%. Because they're usually going to compromise on that number anyway, uh, if you anchor it in my experience. So that's how we did it. So the way you did it is you you didn't make it kind of a black and white situation. You 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 made it more gray and more easy for the jury to understand and, and side with you. No, I'm, I, I didn't even make it gray. I was black and white because I wrote it on the verdict form. I said, here's, oh, yes, we're at fault. Yes, they're at fault. We're 5% or maybe 10%, I don't remember. Uh, and they're you know, 90%. And there it is on the verdict form. And the more concrete you can give with examples and, and reasons for those numbers, the better. Let me ask you this. How, how did you argue damages in that case? Did you come up with a number or an hour yeah. user? Always, 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 always. So I start with numbers in, in, um, in jury selection. And I do it as part of a cause question. And it'll start, and I, I, I know we don't have t time to go through all this today, but we'll generally start as... Um, how many people here have some negative thoughts or feelings about lawsuits? And this is Jay Burke method. And if anyone wants to sort of see 
a really good articulation of that, check out Keith Metnick's book, Don't Eat the Bruises, because he does a nice job summarizing it. But I'll start out by how many people have negative thoughts about lawsuits. We'll talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. What that is a cause question, you know, based upon your feelings. How many people here then would have, you know, start out with half a strike behind for the people who raised their hands. And then I start talking about non-economic damages versus economic damages. And I explain the difference between the two. And then I ask how many people have negative feelings about uh, non-economic damages, pain and suffering. And there's almost always going to be people who don't like that. In other words, people that are, and I even say this, you know, so some people are fine with the chalkboard numbers, things like lost wages or medical bills. But when it comes to those non-economic numbers, the pain and suffering, the mental anguish, that, that just doesn't feel right. It leaves a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth. How many people feel that way to any degree? And then you get them talking and you know you try to <clears throat> get them to agree that they couldn't be fair or that they're starting out a little bit behind so that they can, should be stricken for cause. <clears throat> then I said, okay, let me ask a third final question about this. We've already talked about large jury or we've, we've talked about pain and suffering. We've talked about people that are uncomfortable. What about a verdict solely for pain and suffering and emotional harm, these non-economic damages not to exceed $26 million, or I think maybe I said 50, $50 million. And all of a sudden you see them react viscerally. Ooh, they kind of recoil on their seats a little bit. And then you get them talking about that and you get some of them off for cause. Uh, you know, no matter, and you always end it with no matter what the evidence may be. And so I start anchoring it that way in Vladimir because you need to know. And there's some people that say, I could never do that. Never. And you need to know who they are fairly under the law. I mean, they, that is a, a, an important uh, piece of information you should know if there's people on the jury who can never give, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter the evidence in the case, could never award a verdict like that. And so then um, in opening statement, uh, I, I cover the liability and I talk about who she was as a human being and the loss that this has meant to her parents. And then I say, which is why at the end of this case, we'll be asking for a verdict not to exceed $50 million. And you got to believe it. You got to feel it in your heart. And I think that's really important. That is a, um, again, there's a method that, that Trawler's College teaches, but you got to sort of, it's like the Stanislavski acting method where you've really got to put yourself in the position of what if it was me? What if it was me? What if I lost my daughter? And I imagine losing my daughter, who, you know, ironically was in college at the time. And it becomes real easy to feel it. And, and so when you say that, not to exceed $50 million, for me, $50 million wouldn't even come close. I wouldn't do it. And that's real. And, and so, you know, you go through the trial and you present the evidence, you present the parents, you tell the story who this amazing kid was. And that was the other thing too, by the way, you got to have a good client. To get a good verdict, I think you have to have a great client or the defense has to do something really stupid or there has to be some horrible act. Uh, but here we had a great client. And uh, so then again, in closing, I, I'm a very firm believer that you have to use exhibits, lots of PowerPoint, lots of slides. I mean, I think most of us do that now, where you show by pictures who this person was and you tell her story. And then in closing, I combine um, uh, those photos with the life table for both of the parents. And I think both of them had like another, you know, 26 years life expectancy or something like that or whatever it was. And then I tied into that. I said, you know, a million dollars a year uh, for each parent, which is why I came up with, I think, you know, $54 million. Worth. So, so in a, at the end of it, and I use the language not to exceed. 
that's a Harvey Moore uh, creation. Harvey Moore is a great jury, cons jury consultant, uh, psychologist out of Tampa, Florida. I've done a lot of focus groups with him over the years. And um, that's language he came up with. I know Steve Yard has used that a lot, so I've adopted it, and it seems to work. It's, um, it's, it, it's got, I, I, without going into all the psychology, it just, it works for me. And so that's, you know, I would, I would go through the story of who she was, talk about the loss of parents, talk about the agony that this has been for them. Then sometimes I would put up the jury instruction itself and go through each of the elements, talking about how each of those elements has to be considered put up the life tables, talk about, you know, the years that the parents are going to live without her. Uh, every time the anniversary of her death comes along, every time the, her, her birthday comes along, every time uh, there's a Christmas or a Thanksgiving or a family get together, she's always going to be there. And there's always going to be this unimaginable grief of losing a child. And that's why, you know, then I say, you know, that's why at the end of this day, you know, a million dollars a year is not even enough, but in this case, we are asking you to return a verdict not to exceed $56 million. And you do it with, with fervent passion and belief because if you've done your work on yourself, you feel it and you believe it and you know it. And it's got to be sincere because the jury can smell it and they can feel it. You know, we're all animals. It's like when uh, you, you see a, a dog, you know, in the street, the dog is going to look at you and size you up. And, you know, he's going to know if you're fearful. He's going to know if you're confident. He's going to know if, you know, you're not scared of him one bit and, and that's going to dictate how the dog reacts to you. And, and so these, these intangible emotions that, that we feel the way they, they come through in our face, they come through in our body, they come through in the air we breathe. I mean, the whole thing, the jury gets it. And so you've got to be honest with yourself and honest with the jury about how you feel. And so why, when it comes to asking for damages, if you can feel it, and know it to be true for you, imagining that it was your loss, then it's easy to tell the jury and they feel it. Thank you. It, it sounds like you really, you were a very good lawyer before going to the Jerry Spence um, college there, but it, it sounds like by going there and through trial school that you've grown even more. And can you tell us a little bit more about yourself what kind of things do you like to do when you're not practicing law uh, or trying cases? I've really enjoyed hiking. I'm trying to uh, do a little bit more of that. I recently had um, a, a case against Suzuki that was like, gosh, it was like a five-week trial uh, last May, and it got continued. And so I had this huge hole in my calendar, and so I, uh, I did a 500-mile walk. I've never taken four weeks off in my life, uh, but it was called the Camino de Santiago. It was really a a pilgrimage and went by myself. My wife gave me her blessing and met another group of people uh, from around the world. And there were sort of eight of us who ended up walking this thing together. And it was just really, really transformative. But the idea to, to get away and just sort of unplug, I think is so incredibly healthy. Uh, and I'm going to try to do a little bit more of that <laughs> uh, as, as I move forward. Cause I think it's important. I think you come back more balanced and, and more excited about being back in your practice, helping these people that, that need our help. In a normal week in Orlando, do you work out every day or do you try to eat good or, or what other things do you do? Or do you just go to Spain or I'm, I'm not sure if it's Portugal, not in shape and, and start doing that? 
No, you know, I, I've, I've tried to, to exercise. I'm not a fanatic. I'm, I'm incredibly inconsistent, but I try to, I try to do something three or four days a week, at least. I mean, if I'm really on a roll, you know, it'll be more than that. But, um, I think for, uh, for me, I love to run, uh, you know, even going for a, for a three, three or four mile run, I think is great. Um, uh, I, I, sometimes try to do some yoga. Uh, I, I sometimes lift weights and try to try to mix it up. I, I've got a Peloton. I love that. And so I think keeping it variable, you know, before I, I did the Camino, I had, uh, I'd been probably running four days a week and, you know, not, not a lot, you know, four, four or five miles at a time. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, so try to, try to, try to, try to keep active because if you don't, gosh, you just, you're, the older we get, the less, the less forgiving our body becomes. Thank you. Could you maybe tell us maybe a little bit more, any other advice that you would maybe give for voir dire, opening, closing, any, anything else? Uh, I, I, I notice you are a very good storyteller. Yeah. It's funny. My daughter just graduated from law school, so this one's easy. And, you know, I'm already thinking about, she's with the state attorneys right now, but I'm thinking about, okay, she wants to be a trial lawyer. What advice would I give her? Uh, I think that if you think about the education we got in law school, even if we did a trial advocacy program, or even if we did trial team, you're not learning today's best methods. Those programs are not taught by great trial lawyers. They're certainly not taught by lawyers who, maybe with rare exception, but who, who really understand the right way to try plaintiffs, a plaintiff's case today uh, and, and a civil plaintiff's case and to ask for money and get big verdicts. And so I think that you start with the notion that you've got to, to continue your education and be really purposeful about it. Uh, just sort of like a doctor who comes out of med school and you know, has this general education. You need to do more, I think, as a trial lawyer to really educate yourself. And so I think for me, that includes um, there's three or four books I'd recommend. I would read Keith Metnick's book, Don't Eat the Bruises. I would read Don Keenan's book, uh, The Reptile. Um, I would read uh, Rick Friedman's great book, Polarizing the Jury. And I would start with, and maybe David Ball's Damages book. Those, those four, I think, were really important in giving you a grounding uh, in, in some of the methods that we should use as, as plaintiff lawyers. So that would be number one is the reading. Um, second, I think you should go to some of the great trial advocacy programs. Two that I would recommend. Well, first of all, join trialschool.org. It's completely free. It doesn't cost a thing. There's a massive video library that you can use. And so if you have an opening statement or a jury selection coming up, it's for plaintiff lawyers only. You have to sign an affidavit saying that you only represent human beings. And if you do, it's completely free. And this is this amazing video library. So if you're going to pick a jury, you can go and watch some of these great lawyers tell you how to do it. If you've got to give an opening or a closing or a direct, whatever it may be. Uh, there's also seminars and symposiums that trial school hosts every year and all the time and webinars. So I would say that would be number two. So number one, reading the books. Number two, join trial school and have access to that video library because it's on demand. You can watch it on your phone uh, and it'll give you some confidence that you're using best methods. Number three, go to some of these great programs. There's two in particular that, uh, you know, I would, 
Well, three that I would recommend. First of all, trial school is going to do one, uh, going to do a soup to nuts, uh, jury selection through closing arguments. It's going to be probably a 10-day program later this uh, or in 2024. But something like that, I would absolutely advise to go to the Trial Lawyers College. Um, there is the NIDA program, the National Institute of Trial Advocacy, where they do a really good job. Now, that's more generic. Uh, that's not plaintiff specific, but methodology is sound. And I think really, really good. They videotape you. They give great uh, feedback from their, their coaches. And then the AAJ, the American Association of Justice, has the ultimate uh, their ultimate trial training program. And so I think it's a combination uh, of, of those three things I think would really uh, be important. And then, of course, getting into trial. Even if you've got to, to try cases that maybe are conflict cases with the public defender's office or uh, taking cases to trial that you know, are losers for other law firms, whatever, may, or, or volunteering with another firm and say, hey, can I come and and help out. That, that's the, the hardest piece of this because it's so difficult for young lawyers to get great trial experience. And until you do it, it's, it's sort of like being in a race. You know, if you're going to do a Formula One race, you know, if you don't even know if, you, if you've read the theory and maybe have driven a little bit until you're really comfortable driving a vehicle, really comfortable shifting and Breaking and looking out for traffic and changing lanes and steering until you have the muscle memory, you can't do it well. And you certainly can't get into a racetrack where there's other really experienced professional drivers who are trying to take your ass out. And so I think that the, the fourth big component of this is practice and you have to do it. You got to figure a way to get your trial. And so those are the big four. Uh, those, a handful of really good books, and there's some others. Uh, on, uh, on, if you go to trialguides.com, that has some really good books. There's one written by Jim Perdue, a senior. That's another really great book. But read those, you know, a handful of those books on, on method, uh, specifically the ones I mentioned. Two, join trial school because it's a free on-demand resource. Uh, three, uh, go to one of these intensive programs like the AAJ or uh, number one is Trial Lawyers College. Uh, or the Jerry Spence method. Those are the two programs that you have to go to, I think, as a plaintiff lawyer. And then, uh, and then finally get experience, you know, get up to bat, uh, get your reps and develop your muscle memory, know how to deal with uh, objections, how to build a foundation, how to overcome a hearsay objection, understand what hearsay is, to use demonstrative exhibits, to be able to use power, PowerPoint, make PowerPoints yourself and, and, and understand how to use them effectively. And so I think those four things for me, as a young trawler, if you do those four things, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna become a great trawler. Thank you. Could you tell our listeners if they wanted to get more information about trial school, where would they find that? Absolutely. Just go to trialschool.org and apply. You know, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, uh, you can call me or or just send me an email or or Bill. You have to get two sponsors, or if you know other um, other trial lawyers who are members. But it's not hard to get a sponsorship. I think if you are a plaintiff lawyer or you're a lawyer who only represents people, you can email both Bill and I and we'll vouch for you. You know, we just got to do due diligence because there is a requirement that you sign a joint prosecution agreement because so many of these videos and some of the methods are so proprietary and so confidential. Uh, we've, we've assured the faculty members who are great trialers from around the country who have 
shared these these really incredible uh, lessons uh, with the with the promise that they won't get in the hands of the bad guys. And so, uh, so if you're a trial lawyer and you only represent people, uh, go to trialschool.org uh, and email Bill and I, and, and we'll get you in. It's completely free. And, and Rich, can you tell us the name of your law firm, maybe your website, and uh, your phone number if anyone, any listeners would want to contact you regarding a case? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our our law firm is Newsom Melton. We're located in Orlando, Florida. We actually have uh, really more of a national practice. We don't have that many cases in Orlando, uh, but um, happy to take a call anytime. My cell phone, if you want to text me, that's the best way to get a hold of me is just to send me a text. It's 321-217-9864. That's my personal cell phone. Probably shouldn't give that out over the internet, but I just did because hopefully the only people watching this are other plaintiff lawyers. And our website is uh, newsomelaw.com. And so you can check us out. Thank you very much, Rich. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to Your Injury Lawyer podcast with Rich Newsom. Thank you, Rich. Love hearing about your, your hike and your trials. Other things that I heard and uh, understand is I think you did real well on that seatbelt case because you try to make the, the case simple so a jury could understand it. And the shared responsibility piece was also very, was very helpful too. And thank you and good luck and look forward to running into you again. Hi, right, my friend. Great, uh, great getting to hang out with you today on your podcast and uh, really, really honored to have, have been invited as your guest. Thank you.